0: Well, good morning. You know, growing up, one of my favorite um, Christmas shows that would come on uh, TV was the Charlie Brown Christmas special. Maybe remember, some of you remember that one. You see it once in a while now. And um, I don't know what I liked about it so much. I just uh, it was simple. It was sweet. Uh, I, I, it was, the characters were fun. And when the scene, one of the scenes that really jumps out to me from from the show was the scene where remember they 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 send off Charlie Brown, who always was getting things wrong. They send him off to find a Christmas tree. I think it was maybe, Lion, or maybe uh, Lucy. She was the bossy one. She's probably the director. She sends him off to find a Christmas tree, and he shows up at, at this Christmas tree lot, and he walks right past these beautiful ones, perfectly shaped cones. And, he, and he, 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 for whatever reason, is attracted, is drawn to this scrawny, skinny little tree with needles barely hanging on and falling off. Maybe, maybe he saw himself in that tree. I don't know. But he was attracted to that tree. He brought it back, he gets a lot of grief about it. But in the end, that tree is is lit up, and it's beautiful as they sing about Jesus' birth. Uh, that that story is a little bit of a, a metaphor for the message I'm going to be look, looking at, bringing to you today, uh, because we're we're talking about Christmas trees, and we're going to begin with um, the Genesis, or excuse, excuse me, not Genesis, Matthew one, where we see a genealogy of Jesus Christ, and we look at the family tree, so to speak, the first Christmas tree, the family tree of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, and we're not going to read through the whole genealogy, um, but we're going to be looking at certain sections of the genealogy, the first 17 verses of Matthew, and it begins with a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, you know, there's a lot of genealogies in the Bible, mostly in the Old Testament. This is the the primary one in the New Testament. And we often get to these genealogies that say we're reading through the Bible and we skip over them pretty quickly. You know, uh, we don't know how to pronounce their names. A lot of them, we don't really recognize the names. We don't know much about them. Some of them are kind of obscure. That's the only place they're mentioned. And so we typically just jump over genealogies because we think, well, what's the point? You know, what's the relevancy of, of this you know genealogy? But... But Matthew begins the New Testament with this theology because it's very relevant, very important to to him, but also to us. You see, Matthew was a Jewish man. He was one of the twelve disciples and he had a heart for his fellow Israelites, his fellow Jews. He had seen them reject Jesus Christ, and his heart and desire was that they would come to acknowledge that Jesus was the Messiah, the promised one, the chosen one, that he was the Son of God, and that they would put put their trust in him and be saved. And so as he put together the Gospel of Matthew, um, he begins here with the genealogy of Jesus Christ, because he wants to establish through the genealogy that Jesus Christ was, in fact, in the line of David, because That's what they were looking for. They were looking for the Messiah to come from the line of David, to come in and usher in a new era of national prosperity, a kind of a new golden age, a new era. And so he begins with a genealogy to establish to them that Jesus Christ was, in fact, the Messiah, that he had the bona fides, so to speak, to be the Messiah. Because for a Jewish person, genealogy was was very, very important. It told you who you were, where you came from, what tribe you were from, and it told you if you were, in fact, 100% Jewish, if you were part of the chosen people of God. And so that's what Matthew is doing. He wants his readers to know who Jesus was, where he had come from, and then ultimately what he had come to do. So let's take a look at Matthew's genealogy, and we're going to start again with Matthew 1. Starting in verse 6, we see that King David was one of Jesus' ancestors. And following that, there's a series of kings, uh, Solomon, Rehoboam, Abijah, Asa, Jehoshaphat, and so on and so forth, down through verse 11. And so Matthew makes this direct connection of Jesus to Jewish royalty. Uh, In fact, Matthew makes this reference to Jesus as king 22 different times in the gospel, which is more than all the other New Testament books. So there's a theme and a point there we need to pay attention to. And you get the sense that there's more that meets the eye going on when you come to verse 17, where we read. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, that's talking about the exile. They were taken in chains into captivity to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. So three different sections of 14 generations each. Now, it might be helpful to think of... um, of, of these, this section, these three paragraphs is kind of a line graph, sort of like a stock market report. It goes up, it goes down, goes back up, kind of reflects what 's going on the health and, and what 's going on in, in, the, in the confidence in the stock market. And, and this is sort of a, uh, a line graph charting the fortunes of Israel in the Old Testament. So it begins in verse two, and that the first paragraph of names begins with Abraham and it rises up. To the time of King David, kind of that was the golden age of Israel. And then it bottoms out, it turns and it bottoms down, uh, downward into the Babylonian captivity that we find described in the second paragraph. And then it turns again and it goes up, this time rising up out of the Babylonian captivity up to the time of the birth of Jesus Christ. And in those three movements within the genealogy, there are three aspects of God that we're going to that came to us in Jesus Christ that we're going to focus on, the mercy of God in the first upswing, the judgment of God in the downswing, and then the faithfulness of God in the last upswing. So let's begin with the genealogy from Abraham to David, which shows us the, the mercy of God. Now, the most striking thing about this first section is that Matthew mentions the names of four women, which would have been very unusual in Jesus' time for uh, Jewish genealogy to include women. Uh, And if you did include a woman or women, you would do so only for the purposes of enhancing the nobility uh, and the purity of the lineage. And so, for example, you'd expect Matthew to maybe mention some of the great ladies of the Old Testament, uh, Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel, the wives of... Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. After all, their husbands were part of the lineage uh, of Jesus. But instead of mentioning those three great women, or others he could have mentioned, look at the ones that are mentioned. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Two of those aren't Jewish. Rahab, you remember, was a a Gentile, and she happened to be a prostitute as well. Ruth was a, a Moabite woman. So he chooses women who do not in any way enhance or bring credibility to the nobility or the untarnished Jewishness of Jesus, but quite the reverse. What's the point? Well, he wants us to know that God's love is bigger than the Jewish race, that God's grace is offered to all people, that Jesus is to be the savior of all people, and that Jesus is to be a light to the Gentiles. That he is, in fact, the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham back in in Genesis 12, where God said to Abraham, Through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. So Matthew wants us to know that the blood of two Gentile women, two Gentile mothers, course through the veins of the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. But that does not even begin to compare with the audacity that Matthew shows as it continues on in this paragraph, because not only were two of these women not Jewish, they were in Gentiles, they were outsiders. Three of them had very notorious past. I mean, we typically do not in our youth group hold up Tamar or Rahab or Bathsheba as role models, you know, for our young women. Remember the story, Tamar tricks her father-in-law into having sexual relations with her. And the child that comes as a result of that relationship becomes a grand a, a, a part of, a, a distant grandparent, grandfather of the Messiah. Rahab, as we said, was a prostitute who plied her trade on the walls in the city of Jericho. The fourth woman mentioned here is, is so scandalous that Matthew does not mention her by name. she's inferred, it's inferred. Bathsheba, look at verse six. and David, the father of Solomon. By the wife of Uriah Bathsheba was the, the wife of Uriah remember the story David is on the top of a you know building catching the sun etc or something like that he looks over Bathsheba is bathing he likes what he sees he gets together with her she gets pregnant he sends her husband to the front lines of the battle he gets killed problem solved he thinks and yet Bathsheba, this scandalous liaison this woman was a distant grandparent, grandmother of Jesus. It's as though Matthew scoured the lineage of Jesus to find the most most scandalous women. Maybe he wants us to know that not only is God's love bigger than the Jewish race, God's love is bigger than our sin, than my sin and, and your sin. God's love embraces us even within our sinfulness. God uses stained and soiled but repentant sinners in order to bring the Messiah. Even the genealogy of Jesus Christ drips with the grace and the love and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And we see that he truly is a friend of sinners. Now, lest you think I'm picking on the women here, let's look at some of the men in Jesus' family tree. There are some real uh, winners here. It begins with Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel, we look through scripture, more than once he lies, he deceives to save his own neck. His grandson Jacob was quite the smooth operator. He cheats his brother. He cheats his uncle. He's in the list leading to Jesus Christ. Jacob's son Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by committing incest with his own daughter-in-law Tamar. You go on and on through the list. Manasseh, a name that we don't often hear of. He was one of the kings. And even though this Wicked king sacrificed his own son in the fire to Baal, and he was heavily involved with the occult, and he shed so much innocent blood that 2 Kings 21 says he was a terror to his own people. God even used Manasseh as part of the history leading up to Christ. Suppose you could pick your own family tree. You know, they say we can't pick our own parents. I guess that's true. But what kind of family tree or pedigree would you choose for yourself? You'd probably want some heroes, some you know pillars of the community, uh, some adventures, some, uh, some exciting people. You wouldn't pick shady characters or scandalous men or women. But one baby did pick his own pedigree. And he chose an ordinary human family with scoundrels and saints mixed together. You know, some of us are in the midst of messed up family systems and relationships now when we wonder... Does God, does God understand my pain that I feel for my family, that my family's caused me, that I've maybe caused my family? Does God feel the hurt that I feel for them and loved ones? The answer is yes, when we look at Jesus' genealogy, because he has been there and identified with us through his son, Jesus Christ. Some of us think we're permanently damaged goods, you know, that we're that the mistakes we've made in the past have disqualified us from ever being a part of God's family, which is a lie from Satan. No one is unsalvageable. Christ's death on the cross, his sacrifice is sufficient to save anybody who puts their trust in him. So let's take a look now at verses 6 through 11. The first section, we see the mercy of God as he as he chooses to include and work through flawed, sinful people like you and me. Let's take a look at the next section, verses 6 through 11. The genealogy from David to the Babylonian captivity where we see the judgment of God. Now at the beginning of paragraph 2, Israel is riding high. It's the height of King David's reign. But suddenly it all crumbles. And in verse 11 we read that at the time Jechaniah was king of Israel... Israel is put in chains and carried off into exile in Babylon. What happened? Well, listen to a voice from the Old Testament, the prophet Amos chapter 2. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. They sell the righteous for silver, the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as upon the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. What happened? They divorced religious practice from concern for the poor and the oppressed. It wasn't that Israel didn't go to church often enough. It wasn't that they didn't observe the festivals and offer sacrifices and and give offerings. The problem was they had forgotten the poor. They divorced the religious practice from concern and action for the poor and the oppressed And listen to what God says we are to do. He has shown you what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before your God. Let's do a little exercise. How does it feel this morning uh, if we would take, make this example, if the world was shrunk down to a village of 100 people? If we did that, there would be one-third who would be rich or of a modest income, like most of us, two-thirds would be in poverty. Of the 100 residents of our village, one would have gone to college. 35 would suffer hunger or malnutrition. 50 would be either homeless or living in shacks. Of the 100, six would be Americans, and we six would have one-third of all the income in that village. The other 94 would split up and subsist on the other two-thirds. And every year, we six Americans would spend $86 on defense, and 40 cents on spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our hearts are to be broken by the things that break the heart of God. And so what happened in paragraph 2 of Matthew's genealogy, where despite their religious activity, Israel plummets into exile? To put it simply, the mercy they had received from God... Did not lead to mercy for others. Take a look now at verse, verses 12 through 17 as the graph turns and begins to rise again. And the genealogy from the Babylonian captivity to the birth of Christ shows us the faithfulness of God. So there is one thing that all 42 of the people in these three paragraphs have in common they have all been waiting. They've all been waiting. For the promise to be fulfilled. Remember, the promise first came to Abraham through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. Then the promise comes to David Your seed will I establish forever and build up your throne for all generations. So the people are waiting. They're waiting for the Messiah to come, they're waiting for God to act, for God to fulfill his promise. Like a child, you know, standing on tiptoe, waiting for Christmas morning to come. The people of Israel are waiting, and generation comes, generation goes, and still no Messiah. And so they wait some more, and they keep the genealogy straight, so they'll know to recognize the Messiah when he does come. Remember, they even rush off to ask John the Baptist if he's the Messiah. Remember, John the Baptist would have met some of the criteria. He was, he was Jesus' first cousin. He was from. The lion of David. They say, Are you the one, the Christ who is to come? And so they waited for God to come. And some of us this morning are waiting also. We're waiting for God to fulfill his promises to his people. We're waiting for him to move in in power in situations of misery or pain or sorrow or heartache, to bring healing, to fracture the relationships, to bring to health or strength, or financial difficulties. We're waiting for God to fulfill his promises. And we wonder, how long, Lord? We have to trust that God will move in his own way, in his own time, according to his will. We're told this in Galatians 4. When the time had fully come, God sent forth his Son to be born of woman. Born under the law to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons and daughters. So, in this genealogy, we see the faithfulness of God because when that one came, when Jesus came, he was a lineal descendant of King David and Abraham. He had a literal right to sit upon the throne of Israel. That's why King Herod was so terrified, so frightened of him. And not only was he a son of David, he was the son of God. And we read through these verses and we see so-and-so was the father of so-and-so and so so on and so forth. And then we come to verse 16 and the terminology changes a little bit. And it says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who was the Christ. So he's, he's not Joseph's son. He's the son of God. He's God's son, and that means for us that Christ's coming canceled the importance and necessity of the bloodline connecting the Jewish people to Abraham. Now people can be connected to God through a faith line, through through faith, not through through blood or human descent. As we're told in John one twelve, for as many as receive him, to them he gave power to become children of God who were born not of blood, but born of God. You know, the reality is that we all have earthly genealogies. In it, after a few generations, we're going to be forgotten. We, we'll be a name in a, you know, a, a family Bible, and, but they're not going to know us. And eventually, over time, we'll all be forgotten. But the most important thing is, will we be remembered in the genealogy of Jesus Christ? Will we be remembered in the book of life? And so the point of Jesus' genealogy is multi. It's establishes bona fides, as he was fulfilling prophe- prophecies, this is who he was. But it's also the point to the mercy of God, To the things that God values, mercy, justice, humility, compassion, and to point us to the faithfulness of God. God will work in us and through us no matter our past, no matter how screwed up our family systems are, no matter how screwed up we have been in the past. God through Christ will graft us into his family tree and which is a thing of incredible beauty. So let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We're grateful for your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for these, these words. We often see them as obscure, but they're part of your your word, your truth. And we look at Jesus' family tree, and we should be humbled and, and encouraged that, that numbered among these individuals, are people who are just like us, who have made mistakes, who are imperfect, who have come from families that are perfect. And yet, Lord, through your grace and your mercy, you have made a way for us to be a part of your family, to be considered your children, to be brothers and sisters in Christ. We thank you for your love to us, for us. We thank you for your faithfulness to us. Help us, Lord, to be faithful to you. And to point others to the grace and the mercy we have received in you. And help us to offer mercy and compassion to those around. In Jesus' name, amen.